Let's pray. Lord, thanks that uh, you are the Lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world. Lord, you're the Redeemer that's restored us to God, the Father. Thanks that your Spirit is with us in the world to lead and guide us. And Father, as we talk about church mission and as we talk about the things you've called us to, help each of us just to hear what you're saying to us. Not too much and not too little, Lord. Not overwhelmed and not let off the hook inappropriately, but might your Spirit use the things we talk about this morning uh, in each one of our lives, just what you want to say to us. Help us to have ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've got your yellow sheet, this one, we're just going to go over the statement on the front of this sheet today. The rest of this, I would encourage you, um, statements of faith sometimes are just pieces of paper that collect dust in the back of a church. I hope that's not all this is. Uh, the men's group that I'm a part of studied this, made this our Bible study last year. Very helpful, very encouraging. If you've never gone through some of these things, it would be a healthy exercise for you to do. Briefer than that, on the cover is our mission statement. This helps define us as a church group. This helps kind of give us a sense of direction. Who are we and where are we going? What's important to us? What do we want to accomplish? We'll take this a phrase at a time. We'll break this up into five phrases. <clears throat> Let me read this a couple times through, and then we'll look through it piece by piece. Lion and Lamb is a fellowship of worshiping believers committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and obeying all his commands. Say it again. Lion and Lamb, that's us is a fellowship of worshiping believers, that's who we are, committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and obeying all his commands. Those are the things we do. Starting with our name, Lion and Lamb, several of you have been here long enough to remember the process we went through in coming up with a name. Uh, Lion and Lamb was not my first choice. And when I thought of lion and lamb, I thought of the little statues that my wife buys me, you know, with the lion and the lamb you see at the Christian bookstores or the little stuffed animals. The truth is, as time has gone by and as Dave and I have talked in the past on the church and we've talked about the church name and implications from that, it really does have some rich symbolism, which I have found very encouraging since we chose our name. Let me read two passages. And on the bulletin, these verses are on every bulletin cover we have every month and the ones you receive by email hopefully also but out of John chapter 1 when John the Baptist down by the river Jordan sees Jesus listen to what he says he saw Jesus coming to him and he said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world Jesus Christ the one coming into the world from God the Father to provide a remedy for our sin the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the ultimate sacrifice, the way of peace for any of us to be restored to favor with God the Father. And then in Revelation 5, John, the same one that wrote this verse, says later as he's in heaven, he sees a scene that makes him sad because there's a scroll. And the voice and angel says, who's worthy to open the scroll? And the voice says, well, no one's worthy. And so John begins to weep. And as he does, he's told by an angel, don't weep. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. 
In other words, Jesus wasn't just the lamb that would die for us, the Isaiah 53 passage. He's not just the one that came, the humble servant, to take our sins on the cross. He is that, and that's necessary. But he's also this conquering king. He's the king of beasts. He's the lion that not only overcame sin and death on the cross and from the grave and the resurrection, but he's the one that's going to come back again to rule heaven and earth. Later on, we'll read about the passage that he says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. So when you think lion and lamb, think of this rich symbolism of Jesus himself, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, and the lion that comes back again to conquer, to rule heaven and earth for God the Father. That's the one we serve. That's the name and the person that we're identified with as a church. If we are not primarily identified by our association, our relationship with Jesus himself, whether you think of lion and lamb or not, those are handy titles and they're great imagery for us to think about, but if we're not identified primarily as a group by our relationship with Jesus Christ, we have absolutely no reason for existence as a church group. And as you know, you can go all over the United States and the Western world and Europe, etc. The world is full of churches that use the name Christian, that know nothing of Jesus Christ. And that's not what we want to be. Life is too short to play at these things. So our reason for existence is Jesus himself. He's our identity. If we don't identify with him, if that's not the reason we gather on Sunday morning, we're missing the boat. He is our identity. He is our reason for existence as a group. Listen to Matthew 18, verse 20. Jesus makes this very easy for us. In Matthew 18, 20, he says, Even where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. You know, a church is, is even two or three Christians. Jesus promises if even two or three of us gather to his name means to him. He promises to be with us. That's a promise I count on every Sunday morning. You know, if the Lord doesn't show up, why bother? I'm a nice guy, you're all nice people, but you know what? If the Lord isn't here, there's other nice people and other nice things to do. He makes it worthwhile. He's the source of life. He's the one we count on when we meet together. It's to him. We meet with each other but we meet to him, to Jesus. He's the head of the church. Uh, John, again, I'm on, I'm on John's writings this morning, I guess, but in Revelation chapter 1, this theme about Jesus and the church and our identity with him, a few verses there, turn there if you want. It's a great image. It's a, it's a very vivid picture. John has been taken up into heaven. And he begins seeing this vision in heaven. And a voice has been calling out. And it sounds like many waters. And he turns. He says in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. First thing that hits his gaze. Seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, so let's just say they're in a circle. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet girded across his chest with a golden sash. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. I'm editing as I go through here, down to verse 20. 
This person, John, sees Jesus says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, this is the answer. You're wondering what these mean. Well, this is the answer. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, the term angel here, it simply means messenger. We don't know if, if Jesus is saying that specifically he's got a, an angel, a spirit being from heaven that's associating with these individual churches. These could be church leaders. We're not sure. But the point is, Jesus says the messengers to my churches I hold in my right hand. You know what that means? He's in control. He's the one calling the shots on what he says to his churches. He controls the message and the messengers to his church. And then he's standing in the midst of the lampstands, and he says the lampstands are the seven churches. Again, this is like a general, if you will, walking through his troops. He is the one in control. He is the one calling the shots. The lampstands are there. He's in the midst. He's directing and guiding all. This is a picture of Jesus and his church. And this should be true of us. He should have us in his right hand. And he should be walking in our midst as the one calling the shots. We should acknowledge that right he has. He's the one in control. He's the one calling the shots. It's interesting that as uh, he begins writing these letters, in chapter 2, seven churches representing probably the church through history, as well as the individual churches he called out in Asia that he specifically wrote to. But the first church is Ephesus, and it's a great church. And he goes through this commendable list. When he commends Ephesus, you and I would be glad to be a part of a church like that. If he said the things were true of us that were true of Ephesus, we would feel great. Hard-working, doctrinal purity, searching out false teaching, getting rid of it. But he says, I just have one problem. You've left your first love. Me, Jesus, their first love. And he says, if you don't repent, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to remove your candle. The implication is, if you don't get right with me, if I don't become the reason for your existence again instead of the work you're doing for me, the work could displace Jesus. Jesus says, if you don't repent, I'm moving your candlestick. Meaning, I'm not going to, uh, you're not going to be my minister anymore. I'm not giving my spirit to you to continue representing me in my name if you're not putting me first. So in other words, Jesus has the power and the authority to call the shots. He has the power to remove our testimony. Probably, if you've been around long enough, you've seen churches literally die, a local group die, die out. You know, at some level, there's probably good church deaths, I suppose. You know, the church in the early days was scattered. Maybe one local group ceased to exist as it had, but it was reproduced elsewhere. Other churches just die. They don't have a candle anymore. It's gone. Sometimes for good reason. We don't want to be in that crew. Jesus, the lion and the lamb, is our reason for existence. And we need to bow and follow his lead. Put a period on the end of the sentence here. Paul says in Ephesians 1, He, God the Father, in verse 22, put all things in subjection under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the head. We're members of his body. We're supposed to take our marching orders from him. We're supposed to be hearing from him, following his lead. So again, for us as a church, when we think of mission, who are we and where are we going, hopefully 
Our first thought is that we belong to Jesus Christ. He is the reason for our existence. We live, we exist, we serve as a church to please Him, to follow His directions, to follow His commands. We shouldn't have any agenda that doesn't put Jesus Christ first in your life or mine as individuals or in our life as a church. He's the Lamb who died for our sins. He's the Lion who's overcome and will return. He's the ruler of His church now. He's the one we meet with, hopefully, each Sunday morning, each home group, each men's group, etc. Two or more gather, He says, I'll gather with you. My question to you, and I guess my question to myself this morning is, is one, do you know Jesus personally? We're talking about church and church mission here, but for all of us, it's important to know that we know Jesus personally. We don't belong to the church, this one or any other, unless we belong to Jesus first. He's the bond that glues all of us together. If you don't know Jesus personally, it's simple. He says, uh, those who accept him, John 1, 12, those who simply received him, believed him, accepted him, trusted him, accepted his, his work on their behalf, are believers, welcomed into God's family, and made, by that introduction, made members of the church, the church universal. If you have, and I know most of you have, if you have, is he first in your life? Is he first in your thoughts? Is he first in your affections? This is a searching question. This, this one's hard to get around. Again, think of this church in Ephesus. These guys were working hard. And they were doing all kinds of things right. But he says, you've, you've lost the one key above all others, which is I'm no longer first in your life. This would be like a husband saying to his wife, I know I love you, you keep the house and the meals are great, but you know what, you never talk to me. You don't love me anymore. You're going through all the motions, but our relationship is cold and dead. So if you know the Lord, is he first in your life? Is he first in your affections? Or has some other idol displaced him? As a church, we want to make sure that we're saying Jesus is the reason for our existence. We put him first above all others. So lion and lamb, our name, who we're, who we're associated with, why we exist. The second phrase there is a fellowship. We debated, uh, kind of lengthy, on a small term, did we call ourselves a fellowship or a church? Fellowship feels a little warm and fuzzy. But we thought, well, maybe it's not clear. And, and actually, officially, we're called lion and lamb church. Uh, both are good terms. Both are biblical terms, right? Church comes from a Greek word that just means to be called out of something, to be called out, a group that's called out of another group. So here's the world. Christians have been called out of the world into Christ's body now, called out. The term fellowship used in the New Testament comes from a Greek term that means having something in common. So we as called out ones now have something in common, Jesus himself. So we're a fellowship. We're a fellowship. We share something, someone in common, the Lord himself and our relationship with him. That's our common denominator. There's lots of groups you can belong to. The church is fairly unique, though, isn't it? The church as a fellowship is unique. We're not a club. It's not a hobby that glues us together, is it? We're not a business. We don't come so that we can make a buck on Sunday morning. We're not an association. We don't lobby Congress for some common benefit or good. 
were a fellowship sharing something, someone in common, Jesus himself. The key here is that we share something in common. And I guess the key term I'd like us to think about on this part of our mission is that it all centers around relationship. Relationship. And fellowship is a good term to go along with that. But uh, you probably know it is possible to come into this church or any church to come in a stranger, sing songs with strangers, smile at strangers, and go home strangers. This is not fellowship. This is not relationship. This is not what God calls us to. He calls us to know and love and serve each other, and that happens through relationships. You cannot have this apart from vital day-to-day, boring sometimes, relationships with others in the body. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. In Ephesians 4, verse 15 and 16, Paul says, Speaking the truth in love, we, all of us, are to grow up in all aspects to him, Jesus, who, who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, that's everyone, the whole body being fitted to and held together by what every joint supplies, by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. Each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Sometimes we get the mistaken notion that we're not very important. I'm not that important. I'm not, I don't, I'm not good looking enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not interesting enough, etc. I'm not wealthy enough, whatever, talented. Take your pick. And we write ourselves out of relationship and fellowship with others because we don't see ourselves as important. The truth is, and this verse says, that it's only as each of us, every joint, every member, interacts with the others that Christ's body is built up. So that means if you aren't interacting with others in the church, right here and elsewhere, it means that their others are suffering loss for your lack of participation And it means you're suffering loss for your lack of participation. It means none of us are getting where the Lord wants us to if we're not vitally in relationship with others in this fellowship. Called out of one group into another, sharing Christ in common, but now relating to each other day in and day out in a way that builds each person up into the person Christ wants them to be. You got a great picture of this in the early chapters of Acts when it says the church... They held all things in common. They were making sure that everyone's needs were taken care of. It says they were going from house to house, having the Lord's Supper. They were teaching. It's just this wonderful picture, kind of of a large family life. And that's what Christ calls us to. When he calls us out of the world, he doesn't just save us, and then we're on our own. He saves us. He brings us into his family. And we should experience that family life with each other in a vital, real way. If we're not, we're missing Christ's desire, his goal for our life. And all of us suffer loss. All of us suffer loss. There's a business principle most of you have probably heard of, the 80-20 principle, that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. You know, in the church, it'd be nice if we had spiritual eyes to see how healthy is Christ's body. His church in the world at large, and also this small expression of that church. How healthy are we? based on the interaction, the fellowship, the encouragement that each one of us brings to the body of Christ? Are we where God wants us to be? 
Again, the only way that we'll get there is by interacting with each other, being in fellowship with each other. You know, the questions I ask myself and I would ask you along this line is, do you, do I, do we have vital relationships with others? Are you known as you really are to others in the body of Christ? Do, and do others in the body of Christ know you and are you known both ways? Is that true of your life? It should be. Now, it's true. We've talked about friendship in the past. You're not going to have 10 or 20 deep, intimate friends because you don't have time and energy for that. None of us do. But is there a core group of people in your life that knows you well, knows what makes you tick, knows what's important to you, knows what you struggle with, and vice versa, that you know that of others? Not in any sordid way, just in a way that you're known. Just in a way that you're known. Does that happen in your life? Is that part of your life? Uh, how about specifics? This is easy. You know, are you in a home group in the church? Are you in a men's group? Are you in a Bible study? Uh, are you having people to your house or are you get, getting over to other people's houses just for fellowship? Do you come to the potluck every other month after service? This is easy. It's just there are ways in which you get to know others and others get to know you. It's kind of the beginning of plugging in together and of having, of being a fellowship and of being in relationship with others in the way Christ calls us to be. Are you helping each other with work projects? That was great when Sean poured a concrete slab. It was cool. There, I don't know how many guys were there, but Sean's friends from work and guys from the church, there was just an abundance of workers, and I thought this is the way it's supposed to be. Sean has shoveled, I couldn't tell you how much dirt at my house on my projects and just said, this is the way it's supposed to be. Brothers and sisters in Christ just helping each other with the things that need to be done. This should be a normal part of church life. It's what Christ calls us to. If you're not plugged in, uh, when I was at a much larger church years ago and we'd have welcome classes come through um, and my responsibility was small groups, you know, I would tell them, if you don't find a ministry niche or a home group or men's group or women's group to be a part of, this probably is not where God wants you. You probably need to look elsewhere. And I would say that here too, not to put anyone off, but just to say you need to find a place where you can plug in. If you're not plugging in, you're missing it. And so is the church. It's pretty routine that people come to a church and we're a small group. This is a little harder to do, but it's easy to go into a church, sit in the back, just to check it out, which is good. Find out, Lord, is this someplace you want me? Once you know that's the church where God wants you, this is a local expression. We all have options. We could go to probably one of a couple hundred churches in Topeka. But when you've kind of figured out this is where I need to plug in, then you need to plug in. Don't sit on the sideline, but get involved. So we're a fellowship. That means relationship. Look at the third phrase there. We're a fellowship of worshiping believers. Worshiping believers. In John chapter 4, this is a good verse on worship, uh, a well-known one. Jesus, speaking to the woman of Samaria about worship, says, An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks as his worshipers. The Father seeks worshipers, this says. Generally, when we think of worship, I think it's about 
singing together on Sunday morning. And that's probably for all of us, that's a significant part of a life of worship, singing to the Lord on Sunday morning. And hopefully when we do that, we try and remind each other when the worship team meets beforehand, God is the goal of our worship. We do not come to sing for each other's benefit. So if you're a little off key, that's okay. And if I'm a little off, that's okay too, because in the end, you and I aren't here as far as worship goes to please each other. We're here to please the Lord himself. And so I hope it's true for you as it is for me. I find that when the church meets and worships on Sunday morning, it is one of the most vital, important moments, if you will, of my week. And it has been the times consistently that if God has wanted to speak to me about something over the years, I generally find that it happens during worship time with the church on Sunday morning. That God routinely in this intimate, hopefully vital, real time where we are with the Lord and we're hearing from Him, uh, He'll speak to us too. It's an intimate time where He can whisper in your ear. It's an important time. It's a good time. But He's our audience. And we worship Him when we sing on Sunday morning or when we pray out or verbally offer praise during open worship time. As important as that is and as good as it is, worship on Sunday morning should just be the tip of the iceberg. This should just be a, a small component of a life of worship. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12. He's gone through 11 chapters of doctrine. Hannah, how boring can you get? Eleven chapters of doctrine. Not boring, but where he's told, Paul for eleven chapters has talked about all these things God through Christ has done. Salvation by faith, all guilty, the old man, the new man, the promises he's kept, the promises he will keep to Israel. And then he comes to chapter 12 when he's going to start giving us some application. The first thing he does is say, I urge you, Brothers, therefore, in light of all these things I've told you about God and what he's done, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now picture just, if you will, for a moment, we don't offer sacrifices. So we've got to give yourself an image. You know what happened to the lamb when he was sacrificed, right? When he was killed, his blood was poured out, and then his body was laid on top of the altar. Who got the lamb? God got it all, didn't he? It was burned up. The, there's all kinds of offerings, but in the whole burnt offering, none of it was eaten by the priests. All of it was consumed on the altar to God. That's the picture here. God got everything. So that when that lamb or that goat or that bull was put on the altar, it was God's and it was all God's. Nothing held back. That's Paul's picture here. He says the only appropriate response you and I have to what God has done for us is to worship him. And we do that by giving him all of ourself, all of our life. We don't hold anything back. You're probably like me. I, I sometimes I have I picture this in my mind. I'm on the altar and then I'm crawling off. Or uh, you know, Jesus says, "Take up your cross and follow me." I'm carrying this a little heavy. I throw it down. I want a little break. 
You know, but the thought here is that Paul says our only appropriate response to what God in Christ has done for us is like taking that lamb or that bull or that goat, putting it on the altar, it all belongs to God. That means everything in your life. That means your thoughts, your words. It means the things you keep yourself from doing, the way you restrain yourself because you don't want to dishonor God. It's not that uh, singing on Sunday morning, that's kind of easy. I kind of enjoy it. But you know what? Being an offering during the week, sometimes that's another story. And that doesn't feel like the holy, happy worship that we enjoy here. But that's as vital as praising God on Sunday morning. In fact, think of it this way. If you're not honoring God by offering Him your life during the week, how meaningful are our words on Sunday morning? be kind of cheap, wouldn't it? In other words, our words wouldn't, wouldn't line up with our lives. So Paul says, give God, give God everything. Then there's meaning when we sing his praise on Sunday morning, isn't there? Because we've lived that during the week. But if we just come and sing songs, and then we don't honor him with the rest of our lives, how meaningful is that to the Lord? He says he's after all of our worship, all of our worship, all of our life. To worship God is to bow down in recognition of his superior nature. In fact, uh, you probably know, but one of the key thoughts of worship in all the Bible is bowing down. Bowing down. We don't think of this in our democracy, in our republic, but the rest of the world through history has understood the thought of bowing before a king if you take your life. Bowing down in reverence. It's to honor God by acknowledging what's true of him. Chris? You bet. You bet, absolutely. Submitting with a good attitude. In worship, we praise God for who he is and what he's done verbally. In worship, we give back to God what he has given us, our life, our time, our affections, our service, our prosperity, all that we have and are. All that we have and are. When we worship God, we give him his due, and we occupy the most fitting place for his creatures. That is adoration of our creator, our God and our Savior. Worship is the only fitting place for any believer to be. A life of worship should be typical of every one of us, and it should characterize every local expression of Christ's body. He's called us to worship. And I love, there's a few people in the New Testament, they're described as a worshiper of God. A worshiper of God. Wouldn't you like to be characterized as someone thought of you? They're a worshiper of God. Maybe you've met people in your life that you were struck when you met them that there's just something real and vital about their life. A worshiper of God. <clears throat> John Piper says, Do you feel more love when God makes much of you or when he enables you to enjoy making much of him? Does your happiness hang on seeing the cross of Christ as a witness to your worth or as a way to enjoy God's worth forever? Is God's glory at the bottom of your gladness? Is God's glory at the bottom of your gladness? Some people think Christians are kind of dull, a dull lot, you know, and that Christianity is kind of boring. But you know, the truth is, worshiping Christians should be the happiest, most joyful people on earth. You and I should be the most joyful people you know in your circle of life, at work and neighborhood and etc., Worship liberates us. When we worship and we honor God for who he is and what he does, 
we are at our best. There's a psalm that says, praise is becoming to the upright. Worship and praise is like a garment that's fit just for us. When we put it on, it fits us just fine, just the way it's supposed to. That should characterize our life as individuals and as a church, that we're worshipers of God. Sunday morning and all week, worshipers of God. He's fine, Tanya. <clears throat> so a question for you and for me, are you, am I, a worshiper of God, not just on Sunday morning? Am I worshiping when I get up Monday morning and Tuesday night? Do you and do I offer ourselves in each day's work as worship to God? There's books written along this theme, but do you understand that nothing you do in life is insignificant if you offer it as worship to God? So that if you are taking out the trash and you're offering that to God, that's worship. When you say, Lord, I do this for you, God says that's worship. He accepts it. He delights in it. Chris? Absolutely. You bet. Yes, it is. If you're doing it for the Lord, it's worship. Everything you do. That's right. And if you're ultimate, whatever act you do, whatever words you share, sometimes when we just restrain ourselves from things, if we're offering that to Christ and to the Father, it's worship. And that's what we're called to. So in word and in deed. One, my last question is, are we joyfully abandoned to God? Are we joyfully abandoned to God? Can you lay your life on the altar for God and say, I'm happy to do so, Lord. I'm happy to be identified solely as your worshiper. We're called to worship. The fourth phrase there, <clears throat> committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. This is a mouthful, but key word there in my mind, and I hope yours, is authentic. 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 If people came to our church and walked away, I would be thrilled if the one word they came away thinking was they're genuine Christians. They are authentic Christians. They practice what they preach. They are what they claim. Authentic. There's lots of shams in the world around us. You know, we live, live in an advertising consumer age, and so there's hype about everything. And you know how refreshing it is sometimes to just meet an authentic person who's just what they claim, no more and no less. They're just authentic. They're genuine. Humble can be in there mm -hmm, with that. Because humble is having a right understanding of who you are and your place in the, in the larger scheme of things. So you bet. Humility goes right along with authenticity. Sometimes we aspire. We think we're something we're not, and so we pretend to something. You know, other times, let me ask you this. Do your friends, do, do your neighbors know you're a Christian? Because sometimes we are something that we don't let out. Sometimes we're a Christian, and we don't want others to know about it. This can work both ways, can it? Sometimes we claim or we want to be thought of more highly than we are or should. Sometimes we want to hide what we are in fact. But God calls us to be on the outside what we are on the inside and vice versa. Authentically, genuinely His. 
this, hopefully this is easy. You know, this frees you from trying to be something God hasn't made you. It leaves you free to be who he has made you. And for us as a church, you know, we're a little group. And you know, I feel absolutely fine about that. Dave and I, we've talked over the years, you know, four years we used to think, man, when are we going to start growing? If we don't grow next year, I don't know. We're, we're, we, we, we labored. We thought, Lord, what, <clears throat> you know, what are you doing? Where, where are we at in this mix? But, you know, I think the Lord has been honored just where we're at. Just where we're at. And if we're no more than a little group ever, you know what? If we're doing the things God wants us to be, he's pleased. If we're only being faithful to him, he's pleased. We can do this. We can be authentic. How refreshing for the world around us if we're just authentic. And, you know, along this line, there's too much goodness in God and there's too little in pretense for any of us to want to be anything other than what God has made us and do the things he's called us to do, to be authentic and genuine. This makes life easy. should make life easy. And it should be what characterizes us individually and as a church. Individually and as a church. Do the folks who know you, do the folks you work with, do they consider you a genuine, authentic person? Do they know you're a Christian? <clears throat> if they don't, they probably don't know you very well, I hope. Do we put on too much and try and make ourselves something we're not? Or are we happy to occupy the place God's given us? And, and whatever he's given us to do, do it fully with all our heart, offering it to him. That's being authentic. That's being genuine. We don't add to what God's done. We don't take away from it. Is your life based on the solid rock of God's word? Are we basing our life? We can't be authentic Christians if we don't know what that entails. Can we? we need to be in the word and the scripture to do that. But to be authentic. We don't want to pretend to things. We want to simply be what God has made us. No more and no less. And the fifth thing, winding down with this, obeying all his commands. This is last in the list. It certainly isn't least. Obeying all his commands. In Romans 1, 5, Paul says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship, God the Father and Jesus Christ, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. The obedience of faith. Now one way to understand this phrase is to say, Paul's saying, when I preach the gospel and people believe, that's the obedience that is faith to believe or trust. And that's probably the primary meaning here. But, when you and I hear the gospel and believe, and obey, therefore, obey the gospel by believing, that should be the beginning of a life of obedience. Of obedience. This should characterize us. Like worship, obeying Christ's commands should be the non-negotiable foundation of our life as a church and of every one of our lives as a Christian. Obedience. Remember, Jesus in the upper room says, If you love me, you obey me. Those who are identified with Christ should be characterized by obedience. This is simple. Matthew 28, Jesus' last words to his disciples before he leaves, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples, followers, learners, students of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. Teach them to do what I told you. Teach them to obey my commands. This is the foundation of evangelism, discipleship, whatever you want. And to put this where kind of the rubber meets the road, 
all of us, the scripture is full of things that God expects us to do. So whatever role in life you occupy, God has specific things for you to do. If I'm a husband, God commands me to love my wife. This has practical implications. This means sometimes I don't do things I'd like to do because I need to serve her needs. Sometimes poorly. Sometimes uh, if I'm a father, it means I may go to a job I don't like sometimes because I'm commanded to provide for my family. If I'm a wife, I may have to submit to a husband I don't agree with sometimes because God commands me to support my husband. If I'm a child, and there's a few in here, I'm commanded to obey my parents, even when I don't want to. This has practical repercussions, doesn't it? This affects every area of your life and mine. You know, every day I've been, uh, I've been struck. Every day, you and I make decisions in little ways and big ways, every day, whether we're going to obey or not. Every day, the scriptures, Christ's commands, challenge you and I whether we're going to obey or not. Every day we make the decisions whether we're going to obey or not. Evangelizing, loving others, serving others. I guess in the end we'd ask, is our life characterized, is our church characterized by obedience, obeying Jesus? When we read the scriptures, are we quick to obey? Are we reading the scriptures so we know what we're called to do? I've had uh, repeatedly questions over the last few years in which people say, what makes your church different? What makes Lion and Lamb unique? And I always feel a little bit at a loss on this. Um, we're in an age of consumerism, commercialism, advertising. And church growth is, is a business to itself. And you can go to every conference and you can buy a dozen books that all tell you how to market the church and et cetera. It's, it's, uh, it's become to me revolting. Um, <clears throat> every church at some level, the things we've mentioned here, none of this is new. There's nothing unique. I make no claim. I espouse no new doctrine for us as a church. If we do the few things God calls every Christian and every church to do and be, how successful. That's... I don't think God's asked us to do anything more and nothing less. He's not asking us to reinvent something, to figure out some new means of being some new group to distinguish ourselves. You know, this really comes down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is old stuff. You know, if we do this, though, we'll be a success. Big or small, old or young, we'll be a success if we do a few things well. Paul says uh, in 1 Timothy 1.5, he said, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If that's true of our church, we're successful. Again, this isn't hard. We don't have to reinvent anything. So when they say, well, gee, what makes you unique? I'm, I scratch my head. Well, you know, we want to be real. We want to love God. We want to worship. I mean, it's just these basics. You never get past the basics. You never get past the foundation. We want to do these things, and we want to do them well. Uh, this is the first Sunday of a new year, 2002. Uh, how many here have already talked about changes they're going to make for this year? Resolutions? A few? Sean? Okay. A few? Okay, half of us probably. Uh, I think that's good. 
you know that when the year changes it does give us a time hopefully to reflect where we at where we're going how we're going to get there let me offer let me uh, offer advice to you if you're not right now <clears throat> this isn't a regular part of your life when you get up each morning to spend a little bit of time just between you and the Lord let me encourage you to make that your New Year's goal that each day begins where you spend a little time with the Lord just a little time 10 minutes if you're not doing this 10 minutes I'm quite serious about this 10 minutes take 5 minutes and read a verse and think about it literally no more than a verse if that's where you want to start or one psalm one short psalm or a short passage whatever Five minutes. In five minutes, tell the Lord what's on your heart. Ask Him for the things you need help with. Quite serious. If it's no more than ten minutes, start there. And just say, Lord, I'm offering you my day. I worship you with the things I do today. I'm putting you first in my life. And I'm going to obey your commands. Just do that. If you're already meeting with the Lord, keep doing it. Stay in His Word. You cannot grow. None of us can grow if we're not in the Scriptures. Impossible. You can't abide with Christ if you're not in His Word. It cannot be done. If you're not meeting with Christ face-to-face, so to speak, personally every day, you'll fail to grow. You'll be like those little babies you see sometimes. They, they say of them they fail to thrive. They don't thrive. Absolutely. Chris, personal relationship. That's what we're talking about. I can't live at my house and the meals you serve at your house. You can't live on the at your house and the meals I serve at my house. Sundays are great, home groups are great, but you know all of us, we thrive or we don't thrive based on our own relationship with the Lord. That's what it comes down to. So let me encourage you, one New Year's resolution, if you're not meeting with the Lord, start your day tomorrow meeting with the Lord. If you are, keep it up, keep it up. So, closing up, what's our mission? We're called to the person of Jesus Christ himself. Our identity begins and ends with him, or we're not his church. We should be a fellowship, a group, in relationship with each other to encourage each other. We're worshiping the Father and the Son by the Spirit when we gather together and every day in our life. We're authentically living the Christian life, not pretending to something we're not, not pretending we're not what we are. We're obeying our Father. This is simple. God doesn't make this hard for us. We're not reinventing anything. You don't have to come up with new goals every year or anything. We can just say, Lord, we've come to know you. We want to honor you. We want to worship you by doing the things that please you. And know that when we do those things, when you do it in your life, When we do as a a church, we will be successful. And the Lord will be free to say to you or me in heaven, or he will be free in heaven as he sees our candlestick, to say, well done. I'm pleased with what you're doing. You've pleased me with your life as a church or as a person. There's no higher commendation uh, that we could receive than that for the Lord to say, well done, I'm pleased. Let's make that our goal. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that you reduce life to yourself. I think of Mary and Martha, Lord. Martha so busy serving and cooking and cleaning. All the things, good things, Lord. Uh, Mary, though, sitting, listening to you. 
Or there's work to be done, but not at the sacrifice of knowing you and loving you. Lord, I, I pray that you would, in a holy way, reduce all of our lives and our corporate life to you. Cut off what's not necessary. What gets in the way of knowing you, loving you, serving you? Help us to be authentic, Lord. Help us to be known as worshipers of you. Help us to be real with others. Help us to choose to obey you daily. Thanks that you don't make any of this hard. You keep it down where all of us can be successful. For our church can please you. We thank you for that. And as we go to worship now, Lord, we just thank you that we can praise you. Thanks for loving us and serving us first, Lord. We just call out to you. In Jesus' name, amen.